0: In 2015, the North American Menopause Society, now known as the Menopause Society, published a position statement regarding the non-hormonal treatment of vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes and night sweats. Position statements are basically an expert analysis of all of the studies in order to determine recommendations based on science, as opposed to what the latest TikTok star or celebrity is promoting. And because new studies are always being done, there's always new information to inform those recommendations which is why position statements kind of like the operating system on your computer need to periodically get updated the 2023 position statement was just released and today my guest is one of the authors of that position statement dr cassandra schufeldt i'm dr lauren striker a gynecologist best-selling author and a nationally recognized menopause expert when it comes to menopause midlife and what comes after I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor, but if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. Dr. Schuvelt is a certified menopause practitioner of the Menopause Society, the chair of the Division of General Internal Medicine, senior consultant at the Mayo Clinic Women's Health, and associate director of Women's Health Research Center at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida.
1: So welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me here to discuss this important topic and important update, as you mentioned.
0: It is important. and But before we get into the meat of this whole thing, I do want to mention that this new position statement is 18 pages long. I don't even want to know how long it took you to write it. And it covers five sections, lifestyle, mind-body techniques, prescription therapies, dietary supplements, and acupuncture, other treatments and devices. And we're obviously not going to do it all because this podcast would be 10 hours long. So I'm doing this in three parts. Today, You and I are going to talk about non-hormonal prescription options, both those approved by the FDA and options not approved by the FDA that are commonly prescribed off-label. And then over-the-counter botanicals and dietary supplements will be part two. And then in part three, I'm going to cover everything else, lifestyle, mind-body techniques, and acupuncture, along with some of those really interesting cooling devices. Before we get into the specifics, who is the typical patient who shows up to say, I need a prescription for
1: a non-hormonal option? So the first thing to say that we still support the use of hormone therapy as the most effective treatment for vasomotor symptoms, and it should really be considered in in women that are within 10 years and that are otherwise healthy without contraindications. And that's the key term here for the non-hormonal position statements because 80% of women can have vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, and that's what this position statement focused on – flashes and night sweats not of the all the other array of symptoms but it's important to understand that there are women who cannot take hormone therapy and what i mean by that is that someone's had a personal history of a blood clot a heart attack or a stroke or a personal history of an estrogen sensitive cancer such as a breast cancer ovarian cancer these women should not just be left to suffer in silence they should really understand that there are options that are effective, are supported by science. It's a position statement not just to make women aware, but also to make providers aware. Because if we're not talking about it to our patients and giving them options and not just saying, oh, well, guess what? You can't take hormone therapy. And not giving them that ability to have something beyond going home and trying to use a cooling device. It's really important from both sides that we really educate women as well as providers about the options that are available.
0: Of the groups that use these non-hormonal options, I am betting that the biggest group are women who think that they are not candidates for estrogen or hormone therapy, but in fact, they really are. So that's why your comments are so important because a lot of women show up saying, well, I can't take hormones because my aunt had breast cancer or XYZ, or were even told by a physician that they can't when in fact, they're excellent candidates. So- But we then do need to acknowledge that, as you said, there are women who do actually have contraindications. They can't take hormone therapy because of a medical condition. And while all of the things that we're going to talk about will help in terms of treating vasomotor symptoms and and night sweats. It's not going to help their bones. It's not going to help their bladder. It's not going to help their genital urinary symptom, all the other things that estrogen does. But having said that, there's no reason to suffer in silence. Start by talking about what it takes to get on the recommended list. It's not
1: so easy. And then talk about the different levels, level one, level two, and level three. Certainly. And, and that's where it's important as a scientific community and as, as, as a committee that we decided and went through every single area on what the evidence showed. While I was the lead for this position statement, it did take an entire team of specialists across all avenues of women's health, from psychiatry to psychology to endocrinology, OBGYN, internal medicine. So this really was a concerted team effort that we had section leads for each area. So it was a, it was a long and vetted process, but it was an important... One that we really called out the research.
0: That's so important to realize how many experts are involved in this analysis and how deep it goes. This is not just something that's like, oh, well, this is what I think. You know, this is this is much
1: more involved than that. So level one is that there's good and consistent scientific evidence to support the use of this, this medication for the treatment of hot flashes and night sweats. Level two is that there's limited or inconsistent scientific evidence. So less likely to have a clinical trial with a placebo arm, that's level one evidence. It could just be a study where they observed a finding in a group of women. That would be more consistent with level two or even that they had very small sample sizes because to run a big scientific study obviously takes a lot of money. And so some of these techniques were run in much smaller groups. It still doesn't say that it does or doesn't support the science. That's still level two. And then level three was really based on consensus and expert opinion. We then took each medication or treatment option and said, we recommend it for hot flashes and night sweats as a non-hormonal treatment, or we do not recommend it. So it really is broken down to, we recommend it, we don't recommend it and then what level we do recommend it by. And some of it did come down to our consensus and expert opinion. And you'll see as we go through the medications, how we came up with that decision some of the medications that have changed where they were recommended on the previous position statement, were no longer recommending that on the new updated position statement. And we'll talk about why we did that. And some of that has to do with level three evidence.
0: And which is so interesting because that was the first thing that I noticed was the changes. When I first got the position statement and a few things just jumped out at me and I said, whoa, I didn't know that that's no longer on the recommended list. Also important to emphasize, a level two or three today might be a level one on the next recommendation, right? Correct. When we talk about how good the scientific evidence is. And you mentioned a lot of things in terms of the quality of the study. But one of the things that's really particular to vasomotor symptoms and hot flashes is the placebo effect. And we know that the placebo effect is real, but it doesn't last. So I'm wondering, as you look at these studies, if you have something, and a lot of these studies, because they're so expensive and because people want to get published quickly, a lot of these studies only go for maybe like 12 weeks which is still placebo effect in a lot of cases. So is that enough to land someone in level two instead of level one, if the studies are just not long
1: enough? A lot of them do go out to 12 weeks, but then they have an additional arm that goes out. For example, the medication that we'll talk about that's FDA approved for the treatment goes up to 24 months. So it is important when you do think about that in terms of the level of evidence, I think that's a really important point that you bring up because placebo in any treatment for hot flashes at night so going can be almost 30 to 40 percent
0: placebo effect is huge and the placebo effect lasts just long enough for someone to write an enthusiastic testimonial on someone's website about how well something worked <laughs> when yeah. in fact if you were to circle back to that person
1: five months later they would say all right i'm flashing again and the other thing that we did look at was who, who supported the science. You don't want to have a paper that's being published that's, that's actually the manufacturer that's actually publishing that science. Agreed. We did really but, look at it.
0: But if you have an industry-supported study, which we know happens sometimes, you'll have someone who has a new product and they're trying to get a study out, that's, we always talk about peer-reviewed journals, meaning a journal that really looks very closely at the design of the study and how it was conducted and how it was interpreted, and theoretically, it doesn't matter who paid for the study if you have a peer-reviewed journal that takes a careful look at it.
1: What really puts you into a level one evidence is the consistency. And if you have one study that's just an outlier, that's not showing the consistency with the other studies, the scientific consistency and rigor should be there. Ultimately, it does come down to the science and the replication also with the science that's there. Yeah,
0: it's one thing for something to happen published in the Journal of Irreproducible Results, meaning it showed up (laughs) to work in one study and then in all the other studies, it did not. So it does have to be consistent. Let's get going,
1: starting with the SSRIs and the SNRIs. SSRI and SNRI stand for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. They're commonly used for the use of depression.
0: They were not developed, FDA approved or distributed for the point of treating vasomotor symptoms, but were serendipitously found to do so. You know, the group of women said, wow, not only am I not depressed, but suddenly my hot flashes are gone too, which was what then prompts people to do more studies and take a closer look. That's the the point of something being prescribed off-label. And a lot of people don't understand that off-label is perfectly legitimate. It means that we have good scientific studies to support it, but that was not just what the FDA approved it to be used for. Yeah. As a general statement, how, how well do the SSRIs and SNRIs work in terms of alleviating hot flashes? This is really
1: speaks to the fact that the last couple of decades we really understand where hot flash starts. And so when I explain to women about prescribing this, I'm not prescribing it for depression. I'm I'm prescribing it so your body can hold on to serotonin and the area of the brain that controls your hot and cold perception, your, your thermostat basically is the based on the serotonin itself. And so studies have found that they reduce both hot flash frequency as well as severity by up to 50, sometimes up to 70% yeah. over placebo. I mean, over placebo, we just talked about the placebo effect. And as opposed to depression, which can take sometimes three, the full three months to work, you start to see them work after two to four weeks. We want women to stay on them. They're not meant to be an uh, on demand medication. It's a medication that you did you have to be consistent about taking. But that's the what studies have found is that they both they they reduce both frequency as well as severity.
0: And I want you to, to talk a little bit more about the frequency versus severity because a lot of times when people read reports about these drugs and they're told, well, they're only going to decrease your half flash by one or two a week, and you're thinking, well, that's not meaningful. But when you're looking at decreasing severity that makes it a lot more meaningful.
1: Right. So, severity, you usually think about mild, moderate, or severe. And severe, I always coin these as your super soakers. You've got to stop what you're doing. You've got to find a cool source to cool you down. You might even have to change your pillow a case at night, change your shirt at night. Your hair is getting damp. So, if we can reduce the severity of the hot flash itself to come down to, wow, I just had a hot flash. I felt it, but I'm not Having to take off my glasses because they're fogging up during a meeting or I'm not having to find a source like a bottle of water to cool me down or an air conditioning or my favorite is the, the freezer aisle in the grocery store when I see women <laughs> open their freezer aisle and stick their head in. So if we can decrease severity, that also speaks to quality of life. What is clinically significant? versus statistically significant might be different to an individual. If I yes, can tell absolutely. a woman, you know, it might be not, it might be statistically significant or or not statistically significant in the study, but if I can tell a woman, it's going to drop your hot flashes down by about two per day or two per week, that woman might say, wow, that works. That would work for me.
0: Well, especially, and this is what I found clinically as well, is when I would follow up with, with women who'd been prescribed these medications and they say, you know, it cut it by a couple a day, but they were so much milder. It was fine. It was a matter of just, wait a minute, fan myself off and it passes as opposed to I've now got to completely strip and, and open the freezer doors. People really need to get away from just counting how many hot flashes, but look at the impact on quality of life. Are the dosages the same or are they different than what one would generally take if treating depression?
1: what we generally do in the menopause society world is that we prescribe the lowest doses, starting doses or half the starting dose. If you start to continue to push them up into levels that where you start to use for depression, believe it or not, one of the listed side effects um, for some of these medications, is hot flashes. So I often tell women, if you pick up the medication and start listing off the side effects, hot flashes might be on them. But it's really meant for the upper tier of those high dose medications that we're really not going to touch, because those are really do- the doses that we use for depression. So in general, starting the half, the starting dose or the starting dose is what's recommended, and not continue to go up and up and up just if you're not getting relief. Now if you're not getting relief from one, should you be switching to another one? And and I always liken this to it's like a shoe. Someone's heel might not fit as well as a tennis shoe. So, it might be that, yeah, these are, these are the same classes of medications, but there might be slight changes that you can try. Now, that doesn't say that it's a good fit for every woman, but in general, you could try a few um, with your provider if needed.
0: But the point is, if one doesn't work, it doesn't mean that another one might not work. So if let's just say, as an example, that someone is is using an option that they were given by their physician and it's not working. Would your inclination be to go up a dose or say, no, let's try a different one altogether? Can you even make that generalization, or does it really
1: just depend so, on the individual circumstance? Of course, everything depends on the individual circumstance, but this is what I always say, is that give it a good go. Meaning if it's only been two weeks, let's keep it going and see how you do. We really are gonna see that sweet spot between that eight and 12 week period. If it's totally not working, after that period, I can then switch them to a different medication. Or if they're on the half the starting dose, I sometimes titrate up to the starting dose or the next one up. So it's really, it is individualized, But I also think that there is a method behind what we we do in terms of the treatment options. There also are differences between the different SSRIs and SNRIs. Some actually are a little bit more sedating than others. And if I have a woman who has a really difficult time sleeping because of her hot flashes as well, then I might choose one over another. If I notice that there's a, what I always say, two two things going on with at once, a little bit more depression or anxiety, I might choose one over another. So it really is an individualized, even though they're all the same class of medications, there are very unique differences within each one. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And some of them, of course, have been more studied than others. It's also important to point out that if someone is on tamoxifen, then that's someone who should take an SNRI as opposed to an SSRI. An SSRI might might make the tamoxifen not work as well. So we we steer towards the SNRIs. Now, paroxetine seven point five milligrams is the only SSRI that is specifically FDA approved for the treatment of hot flashes. And the trade name of that is is Brisdell. But a lot of patients take Paroxetine for in higher doses, Paxil and, and other names to treat depression. And it's available as a generic in 10 milligrams. So a lot of women say to me, okay, either I pay extra to get the 7.5 version, or I can pay out of pocket and get the 10 milligram for a lot less money. So what do you tell your patients? What are the pros and cons of doing the 10 milligrams versus the
1: 7.5 milligrams? It's a great example of being very individualized and and being very aware and cognizant of -of out-of-pocket costs. But also, I do mention that the Proxian 7.5 did decrease severity and frequency for up to 24 months weight gain can be a side effect in very high doses of the, um, of the SSRIs, SNRIs as, and it did not have a negative effect on libido. But -hmm. certainly I do take into account consideration because it is a medication that is available at a lower dose in a generic.
0: My approach is exactly the same. If someone's on the 10 milligrams and they say their libido's just fine, they're not gaining weight, it's working for them. The only other downside for some people, not everyone, is that if they have paroxetan 10 milligrams on their medical record, very often they are identified as having depression depression because that's what it's prescribed for, as opposed to if they have the 7.5 milligram, that is very clearly never prescribed for depression and just to be clear it will not help you if you are depressed unless you're depressed about having hot mm-hmm. flashes and it helps your hot right? flashes so so there is that distinction as well bottom line what is it level 1 recommended level 2 not recommended level 3 where does where do the ssris and snris fall so these fall under recommended level 1 excellent all right next up gabapentin and pregabalin which are collectively known as the gabapentinoids So let's start with gabapentin. Just generally, what is it and what is it FDA approved for?
1: Old medication, been Mm -hmm. on the market for years and years. Um, It was approved as an anti-epileptic drug, so a seizure drug. Doesn't work very well for seizures, comes to find out, and there's a lot of new medications that we now use for seizures, and gabapentin has fallen by the wayside for that. It's now commonly used to treat diabetic neuropathy, which is a nerve pain disorder. It's it's used for nerve pain disorders after um, surgical procedures as well, such as mastectomies, and uh, the doses actually range from 100 milligrams all the way up to 2,400 milligrams per day. So when we talk about using it for hot flashes and night sweats, we're talking about the lower end of the doses. Again, I think that's kind of the mantra for this is the lower doses that we use for the the hot flashes and night sweats. What's been studied in several trials is the dose of 900 milligrams. So 300 milligrams, three times a day. I oftentimes use it at night up to 300 milligrams, but it has been shown to improve frequency as well as severity. Um, But it comes with some adverse side effects. The old adage is if it doesn't have a side effect, it's probably not not working <laughs> but but we do need to be cognizant because it does can cause some dizziness and, and drowsiness now the drowsiness might work to our benefit if we're dosing it at night um, for some women but I always say if, if you're using it and you've got to get up in the middle of the night just sit on the side of the bed until you get fully up and adjusted
0: and some of those um, side effects okay. do get
1: better over time yeah that's what I mean is it it's it's almost as it, your body's adjusting to the medication. Yeah.
0: I have to admit, I don't prescribe it a lot for hot flashes. Gabapentin is something that I prescribe more for nerve pain, specifically for vulvar pain, vestibulodynia, and conditions such as that. And a lot of times the side effects do make it tricky and you have to start really low. One of the things as we go forward and talk about these drugs is that patients are always saying to us, well, how does this compare to estrogen? How does this compare to the SSRIs? How does this compare to this? How does it compare to that? And we generally don't have those kind of studies because very rarely do people do these what we call head-to-head studies where you're comparing yeah. two drugs, it doesn't work as well as estrogen. I think we can clear, very absolutely as an overall arch say that none of these drugs that we're going to talk about are going to work as well as estrogen. Correct. But are we going to get even
1: close with gabapentin? Well, the they have done placebo-controlled trials, and the higher doses of gabapentin, those ones that were way up in that 2400 range, were as beneficial as estrogen in reducing the severity of hot flashes that's severity, not frequency. But again, the adverse effects, you're seeing this dizziness, you're seeing even headaches or disorientation at those very high doses. So it's hard for us to say completely, you know, the direct, direct comparison because we really don't touch those doses when you get into Mm -hmm. that high of a range. Um, But again, you know, it doesn't mean, when when we go through these medication options, it's important to talk to your doctor and provider about what medications you're currently on. And if any of these medications interact with medications you're currently on, I oftentimes layer gabapentin onto an SSRI. So I will have if I if I have a woman who's having the SSRI did great in improving her daytime symptoms and perhaps the nighttime symptoms aren't as well. I do layer it on so I can I can add it on. And those are studies that haven't been done either. Mm -hmm. There's been no in comparison to estrogen.
0: Well, I always talk about why it is so important to see a menopause expert if you're having difficulty, because these are the kind of nuances that, quite frankly, even most doctors who are comfortable treating hot flashes and treating menopause symptoms are just not going to be able to offer. So if you're not getting the help that you need, doesn't mean you can't get the help. You just might need to go yeah, take that extra step and, and find an expert. Pre-Gabalin, the uh, trade yeah. name is, is Lyrica. Same mm-hmm. as gabapentin or
1: different? So it's interesting. Pre-gabalin was only recently approved in the last five, 10 years. And it's um, it's a mirror image of the structure of gabapentin. So it's a very similar medication, also approved for neuropathic pain, as well as seizures has been shown to reduce hot flashes in actually women with a history of cancer, a majority of the women in that study. Um, Small study, about 160 women, did reduce um, hot flashes after about six weeks, about 60% reduction in frequency. But it did come with some of the dizziness, the cognitive difficulties for those women that were taking the pregabalin. In addition, there was an adverse effect included that included weight gain. And then is also listed as a Schedule 5 controlled substance. Because it has a potential for your body becoming dependent on it and the potential for abuse, we decided as a society and as a writing committee to that to not recommend pregabalin, despite the reduction in frequency of 60% in a small trial, but because of the fact that there were other available options, this medication was not recommended because of that.
0: Yeah, the pregabalin, I mean, and again, important that it's not just about if it works or not, it's also looking at side effects that's gonna land a medication on your recommended or not recommended list. So even though gabapentin has side effects, they are manageable and they get better with time, but the side effects for pregabalin were such that you just said, "Nope, this gets a level yeah. three, not recommended, not on the list."
1: Yeah, and that's the the expert consensus, and we did take into consideration the recognize the restrictions on prescribing it.
0: A lot of these drugs that are not recommended. Such as pregabalin. I think the, the exception to that can be someone who's taking it for another reason and doing well of on sure. it. Doesn't mean that it doesn't work for it to be not recommended. It just means that it's not something that you would say should be used mm-hmm. as a first line option. So there's a big difference between not recommended, stay away. This is poison. Do not take it as opposed to. Well, when we're making our recommendations for our patients, this is not going to be what we're going to go to if their only issue is hot flashes and we're treating hot flashes and night sweats.
1: Oh, yes. This medication has a lot of benefit for a lot of different disorders. Mm -hmm. So that's not what we're seeing. But we're, but, and if you're on it for some other reason, which I always like to see that on the medication list because you're Mm going to see that benefit (laughs) for the hot flashes and night sweats as well. Yeah. All right. Moving on to Clonidin. What -hmm. is it? And what is it generally used for? Another old, old drug. It's, it works also in the brain. Moderate benefit from over placebo, less beneficial than the SSRIs, SNRIs, as well as the gabapentin. The, the sudden, if you stop the medication, what can happen is you get, get a significant elevation in blood pressure. Also could come with low blood pressure because it is a medication that old time medication we used also for that treatment. And with the low blood pressure, can come lightheadedness. It can also have the side effect of dry mouth and dizziness and headache. So, because there were, well, <laughs> it's an it was on the previous guidelines as as a recommendation, and because of these side effects, as well as um, the changes with the medication withdrawal, and and the fact that there are more effective options available that are non hormonal medications, the, the committee decided from a level one as well as level three to not recommend. Yeah, which is
0: is somewhat confusing at first glance. But my interpretation of that is you're saying it works, but the consensus is not to recommend it based on the side effect profiles. So I'm wondering why pregabalin didn't get a level one and a level three because it's kind of the same thing. You're saying pregabalin works, but the side effects are such that it's not going to be your go-to. So the
1: oxy is so the clonidine papers that we reviewed had more levels of evidence as opposed to the pregabalin. There was one phase 3 randomized clinical trial that only had around 160 women in the pregabalin and there hadn't been any recent updates in the pregabalin research yeah. since we last saw it. So that's why we went for to a level 3 evidence.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned 160 people in the paper and I and I think it's very important to emphasize that it's not just the length of the study and how the study was designed, but how many people are in it. Because I call five people lunch, not, not a study. <laughs> and, and, and that's one of the many problems with anecdotal reports. When you go on websites and people say, well, it worked for me, part of that is placebo. But the fact that it worked for one person doesn't mean that it's going to work for a large group. And not only do you have to have a large group of women, but in a perfect world, you would have representation of women of different sizes, ethnicities, ethnic backgrounds. And while people are more cognizant of that now, that certainly wasn't the case. So we have a lot of older studies that are quite frankly, large groups of white women that don't represent or a reflection of our actual U.S. population. And I think that that really needs to be taken into consideration as well. The other thing that's limiting in some of these studies is if you're sick, you don't get in it, you know? So if you have other extenuating circumstances, you're not allowed to participate in the study. And the reality is, is age 50, 50% of women have at least one other medical condition that is Mm -hmm. impacting on their health. So these studies aren't perfect, but they're the best that we have, right?
1: Yeah. And also, it does speak to the fact that if a woman is on clonidine for something like high blood pressure, that doesn't mean that you're not going to get benefit. Right. right. It's exactly. just not, it wouldn't be our first line of treatment. It's not recommended for the treatment specifically of hot flashes or night sweats. Yeah.
0: Which brings us to our next drug, which is, I have to admit, one of my preferential go tos for the woman who is not a candidate or, or chooses not to take hormone therapy. The reason that I like oxybutynin so much is because not only does I think it works pretty well, And the side effects are pretty limited, but there are other benefits as well. So so start off by telling us what is oxybutynin and what is it normally used for?
1: Yeah, so oxybutynin is new to the the non-hormonal position statement and really speaks to the fact that it is an off-label use of a medication that is used and approved for the treatment of overactive bladder and urinary urge incontinence. So these are women that can't make it you got to go, you got to go, you got to, oops, you did you went. And um, so it's an anti it's anticholinergic. it's centrally works in the brain. I think that's kind of a common theme is that we, we are going back to the brain in terms of the treatment options for, for hot flashes and night sweats. And really there were two um, double-blind placebo-controlled trials in women that really demonstrated oxybutynin significantly improved moderate and severe vasomotor symptoms, drop them down very quickly, Within two weeks. And it was consistent. And the the doses ranged from 2.5 to 5 milligrams twice a day. They even studied the longer um, extended release daily dose. So it did show that the the treatment options improved in these women. Perfect example of our science is evolving and how we understand how hot flashes work is still evolving. It goes back to that women kind of stood up and said, look, I'm on this medication for overactive bladder and my hot flashes went away. So scientists grabbed onto that and did the studies.
0: As an aside, it turns out that a lot of men are also prescribed oxybutynin for hot flashes as a result the of therapy for prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to be learned from other specialties as well. We get so siloed in our world that we do. it's kind of nice to look and see what everyone else is doing.
1: Well, you better women's health, you're going to better men's health. I always say that. It's absolutely true. But but one of the side effects that
0: we have little information on is the fact that there is potentially an impact on cognitive function in long-term use. So can you talk about that and how worried should women be about the potential of oxybutynin impacting cognitive function?
1: We had a long discussion about this as a committee because it is important. We know that Alzheimer's is a higher incidence in women, especially in, in an older age. The, we really did dive into the studies and it showed that the long-term use of these medications may be associated with the cognitive decline, particularly when they're started in older persons. So if you're using it short-term, you're getting more benefit. I'll tell you what'll give you cognitive decline is being up all night from vasomotor symptoms and hot flashes and night sweats. Women complain of really difficulty. It's almost like you're in a constant jet lag state because you're not. Your body's not able to recharge. So it was a level one two recommended. But the reason that being is that this is not meant meant to be a medication that you take long-term for the treatment of vasomotor symptoms. It might be something you discuss for other reasons that you take longer term, but for the treatment for hot flashes and night sweats, we felt that this was why we supported the use and recommended it.
0: Just a short time ago, I I did an episode on risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. And aside from being a woman and having family history, we know that vasomotor symptoms in and of themselves are a risk factor being very clear that perimenopausal brain fog and long-term dementia are not the same thing, but Correct. basic motor symptoms are associated with both. So for the woman who is at risk and concerned about Alzheimer's down the road, this is a huge conundrum because they're saying, okay, I got to get rid of these hot flashes because I don't want to get Alzheimer's down the road, but this is a drug that you're now telling me might impact cognitive function. But I think the message is loud and clear that mm-hmm. if you are using an for the seven, eight years when people are having their worst hot flashes, that that should not impact mm-hmm. Alzheimer's down the road. How do you define long-term?
1: This is a two million question. Long-term use, well, if you look at the average woman, it's about seven years that she has motor symptoms, although you know, there's a handful of women up to twenty percent that can go on and have them much longer. How long is too long? Is it seven years or longer? Perhaps I I really do individualize it and and look at the family history and then annually I evaluate is it a medication that we want to stay on, or do are there new medications, and we'll talk about those that have come out that we could possibly switch that woman to.
0: But you also pointed out that when you looked at the studies that show that oxybutynin impacted on cognitive function, very often these are women who started it when they were older. Uh, That's very different than starting it when someone is in their mid to late 40s or early 50s when vasomotor symptoms are generally at their worst and when treatment is most important.
1: This you gave a level one and a level two? had good and consistent scientific evidence as well as limited and inconsistent. So, we we felt that both they had both mixtures of the two studies of a clinical trial as well as observational studies.
0: I can only imagine what it must have been like to be in the room when you were doing these <laughs> consensus opinions. I hope there was alcohol involved as you, and that you were all still friends when it was over because I, I've been in a lot of these discussions and it can get pretty heated. Moving on. So Suvorexant. Uh, this is one that I'm actually not that familiar with and quite frankly was not prescribing. But Suvorexant is sold under the brand name of Belsamra and is for insomnia, which we know is a huge issue. Tell us about suvorexant.
1: Interestingly enough, when you comb through the research, there was a paper that did study this medication when we felt it was important because it was a prescription medication to include it, albeit that was a very small study, which is hence is why it got level two evidence. Right, and the study that was done showed that it, it reduced nighttime hot flashes and night sweats um, in terms of frequency. It did not improve day time hot flashes. So that just tells you probably is timing also related.
0: There is something to be said for someone who takes this both to get sleep and to get rid of their hot flashes. But obviously it sounds like this is something that can't be taken during the day. You don't want to take this as you're going off to give a big presentation at work because you'll be in a coma by lunchtime. What is it? Level one, recommended. Level two,
1: not recommended. Given it was a limited data, we we did not recommend this. It was not recommended. recommended. But having said that, But if you're as a practical point,
0: if someone says my flashes during the day aren't so bad, I'm having trouble sleeping, and it's mainly because of my night sweats, that it might be a reasonable option for them. Again, understanding that just because it's not recommended doesn't mean that it shouldn't be used. It's just you have to be very, very specific about the circumstance. Correct. And finally. We're going to get to the, the newest, the latest, the hottest, the neurokinin B antagonist, which I do have an entire episode on. I'll put that in the, in the program notes mm-hmm. because Fesalinitent, the trade name is Vioza was the one that was just FDA approved. I just did a whole segment on that. So you don't need to go through you know, great detail in terms of how it works and what exactly it does. But I am curious to know, was the excitement in the menopause society there? Was everyone saying, yes, this is great? Was the feeling that this is a really important new class of drugs? What, what happened? Take us to the room where it all
1: happened. This is, this is where the drum roll was going the whole time, because while we were writing this in parallel, which took about two years to write this entire position statement, we were not... Um, sure if this medication would be approved yet by the FDA. And originally, we had a, um, a section in here on future medications that were up and coming. And at the last countdown of the clock going, it got approval by the FDA. And we had written the entire section out talking about the science that had already been presented and published to date. And so as a society and as a committee, we were very excited First of all, it shows interest in women's health because medications are being developed for vasomotor symptoms. It was the first of its kind, and there are several in the pipeline that are coming down the road. I mean, 50% of the world is going to go through menopause, and so we do need options. And we understand now more of the physiology. And this is where science is going for women's health demonstrated that related to placebo, it worked. And so the FDA did give its blessing and approved the medication as of um, a couple months ago.
0: And you gave it your blessing as well, right? Yeah. So this, this is a level one. To your point, I'm always hesitant to write books because I feel like I put in all this work and then I turn around and suddenly they're outdated. And when I was writing Half Flash Hell and I had no idea when Fesalinitin would be FDA approved, so I wrote a chapter on it, And but I wrote it in the up and coming section. And as it went off to press, I, I called the company to say, how yeah. close are you? And they said, well, we, we think we're at least a year away. And I was happy about that. Not because I didn't want women to have this drug, but it's like, oh, good. I don't have to rewrite that section of the book. But that is one of the obstacles, one of the struggles that we have, whether we're writing books or papers that truly in a flash, it, it, so to speak, it can, so to speak, no pun. It it can, it can be outmoded. Right. Side effects. Let's talk side effects of fesilinitant.
1: Not yeah, a heck so of a lot. Yeah. Not a heck of a lot is right. I think the biggest thing as patients that are going to consider taking this medication is the that you need to have your liver enzymes checked. It doesn't cause liver injury. It's just you wanna go into taking this medication without having any liver changes or abnormalities but that so, are. So if you
0: have liver changes to start with, this is probably not a good option because it's metabolized by the liver and it might right. trigger progression of liver problems,
1: but it's not gonna cause them. Is that it does That's not the cause them. So they recommend that you follow up those liver enzymes at three, six and nine months after you initiate also, if there's any symptoms that are new, like nausea or vomiting, they just tell you to get your liver enzymes. I want to really stress that that was very, a very rare side effect um, of the, of the trial, but it, it is listed as a warning and precaution. The other adverse reactions, like you said. Pretty limited and and not very different from placebo, but listed. Abdominal pain, diarrhea, insomnia, those are just some of the, the ones that were listed. But overall, if you look at the grand schema, this is a very safe medication.
0: At, at the time that we're having this conversation, it was approved roughly, what, two months ago now, I think? Two months ago. Have you prescribed it yet?
1: Because it it's is just, out there. I have prescribed it. I've given my first prescription as of last week.
0: And as you start to talk to patients about it, what has their reaction been? Is it's a twofold thing. A lot of women will say, Well, I don't want to be the first one to take a new drug. I'm kind of leery about that. But then on the other hand, we had women that say, Oh my God, thank you. There's finally something that looks like it's actually going to work for me. What has been the general
1: yeah. reaction
0: that you've gotten among your patients? Because you have a very busy practice.
1: I've been very excited about this medication because I just think it really advances our knowledge of women's health. And and like I said, with menopause and menopause treatment care, I've kind of been keeping it in my back pocket to those women that are really miserable and that have kind of run the gamut of all the medications that they've gone through in terms of the non hormonal treatments. And I've been talking to them about it. So I think that those are the women that it's pretty exciting that we have this option available. Of course, I just don't want it to replace estrogen therapy and hormone therapy for women who are eligible and that can safely take hormone therapy. And that's where you really should find a menopause practitioner that can really evaluate your risk versus benefits. But the other thing we do need to take into consideration, you mentioned this before with um, the paroxetine 7.5 milligrams is cost because cost can be prohibitive. But with these medications, if if, if all these other medications have been tried, this is where it's the options lay.
0: The most exciting thing is exactly what you're talking about, that people are paying attention, that people are realizing that these vasomotor symptoms don't just impact on quality of life, but they also impact on length of life. But to your point, one of the big red flags that your doctor may not be an expert is if he or she is saying estrogen is bad, estrogen is dangerous, you should use something else. That is absolutely not the case. We know that estrogen is still first line. That it is the most effective, that is safe. And of course, in addition to addressing hot flashes, it's also going to help with everything else, you know, your bones, your bladder, your cardiovascular system. So I, I think we need to keep that in perspective. Anything that we missed? Anything that you would like to mention before we finish this up?
1: I think the thing that I would mention is that, that it's not just a one size fits all. This is still very individualized. Just like hormone therapy is very individualized in terms of dose and treatment and route of delivery, non hormonal treatments are also very individualized. And we've discussed medications and prescriptions that cover a vast Different array of whether off label use or on label use for symptoms. And it does come down to your individualized treatment options. And, and if there's other things that it can treat like bladder health or mental health, those things might be a better fit for you. So it's not just a one thing or is you can actually layer these on if you have a good menopause practitioner that knows the ins and outs of these medications.
0: Such a good point. It's not always straightforward. And and you and I both very often will get questions on social media or even from patients that want the quick fix. What should I do? And I always tell them, I can't give you that kind of advice without knowing everything about you and your total medical history and all of the symptoms and all of the issues you're having in order to find what the best treatment is.
1: And that's a really important point because the quick fix sometimes use medications Are not going to improve in a week. So you've got to give it that full time and talk back to your provider before you just decide to stop the medications. Because like the SSRI, SNRI, even the gabapentin's, you don't want to abruptly stop those medications. That can actually sometimes be more harmful abruptly stopping a medication that you've been on than just starting it itself.
0: And that's something that someone should always ask when they're given a prescription is if I choose to stop taking it, is it okay to just stop it? Do I need to taper it? Do I need to check back with you first? Because people do get into trouble that way. And as you said, there also has to be some patience with these things. It's like the people that use a local vaginal estrogen on Thursday night to get ready for their date on Friday night. And then they're surprised when it doesn't work. It doesn't work.
1: (laughs) It's not an on-demand medication. None of them really are. None of them are. None of them are.
0: Thank you so much for spending the time with us. And I appreciate it. I know you were busy, 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 giving interviews all over the country and on the media about these important... Important new recommendations. So I appreciate the work that you do. And I Happy thank you to for sharing so. it with us.
1: Thank you very much for having me. So here's the wrap up.
0: The non-hormonal prescription medications that are recommended to help alleviate hot flashes based on solid science and the agreement of an expert panel include number one, the SSRIs and SNRIs like venlafaxine and paroxetine. While FDA approved to treat depression, In lower doses, these drugs will alleviate the number and severity of hot flashes without causing the weight gain, loss of libido, and yes, hot flashes that are often seen when higher doses are used. Number two on the recommended list is gabapentin, which decreases hot flashes, but for some women, it's not tolerated due to its common side effects. Number three, oxybutynin, also known as ditropan, is a drug that is FDA-approved to treat overactive bladder, but was, like a lot of these drugs, serendipitously found to treat hot flashes and can be used off-label for that purpose. Oxybutanin does have the caveat that should ideally be used in younger women for short-term use because of a potential impact on cognitive function. And finally, number four on the recommended list is Fisalinitin, the drug that just got FDA-approved, trade name, Vioza. Drugs on the not recommended list include pregabalin. The trade name is Lyrica. While reports about Lyrica are promising with reduction of flashes up to 60%, particularly in women who are flashing due to cancer treatments, it's not yet made it to the recommended list. Since it can be addictive, it's a controlled substance, And then there's that nasty weight gain issue. And if there's anything a perimenopausal woman does not need, it's something that might make her gain weight. So this is a case in point in that to make it to the recommended list, it's not enough to decrease hot flashes, but it also can't have too many negative side effects. Number two on the not recommended list is clonidine. Clonidine didn't make the cut because not only does it have a number of side effects, but the committee felt that there were just other drugs that were far better. And finally, suvorexant, trade name, Balsamra, is a sleeping pill, and it is not recommended for initial treatment of hot flashes. It actually does appear to be effective, but since it's a sleeping pill, it can only be used at night. If something is on the do not recommend list, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's dangerous, and definitely does not mean that it shouldn't be used for other indications. It just means that the science as of today, is not solid enough to recommend it to alleviate hot flashes. As new science emerges, a product on the do not recommend list may move on up to the recommended list. And finally, all of the experts on the Menopause Society Committee emphasize that estrogen therapy remains the gold standard. And while these non-hormonal drugs may help with hot flashes and sleep, they don't address mood, vaginal dryness, bladder symptoms, sexual problems, cardiovascular health, and bone health. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of.
1: See the light.